right. We have made it to round three. Well, we've covered a lot. And as we have been looking at godliness, we see that this is built on God's mercy. Godliness lives according to our new identity. And we understand that we are to pursue godliness and what our responses should be in light of these truths. These instructions that we have been reading about, they're very clear from scripture, what we are to do and what we are not to do. And yet another issue arises. Living a godly life, although easy to understand, it's hard. It takes work. I want to be godly. I want to live in view of God's mercy. I want to live with my new identity, but it's hard. And Peter helps us here. This morning we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Peter lays out for us what does the life of faith look like? How to live out our faith and be godly. Living a godly life can be daunting at times, just like a, a child trying to conquer a large amount of homework. We can feel overwhelmed. We can wonder, where do we start? And what do we do as moms? We go to our children, we take them by the hand, we give them a big hug, and we help them one assignment at a time. And in many ways, that is what Peter is doing here for these believers, these Gentile believers. He greets these believers with a desire to encourage them, to hold their hands, so to speak, and to help them know how to live out their faith in godliness amidst a world that opposes them. Read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. As with most greetings that we see in the epistles, right off, we learn who the author is of this book. It's Simon Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. This was his name prior to being called by Christ to follow him. But once he is called, Jesus changes his name to Peter, which means rock. Peter affirms that he is a servant. It's a bond slave of Christ. He is a servant of another. He is no longer his own master. He's also an apostle. He's an eyewitness of Christ's earthly ministry and has seen the resurrected Christ. He was specifically commissioned to be the rock, really the foundation of the church that would be established. Although it's not conclusive where Peter is when he pens this letter, Peter knows that his time on earth is coming to a close. Because he was martyred in Rome towards the end of Nero's reign, it is very likely he wrote this letter while in prison and awaiting his sentence by Nero. By this point, Rome has been burned and the citizens are in an uproar. They want to know where, why the arson took place, who did it. And it is believed that Nero himself started the fires in an attempt to divert the growing disapproval of himself. And so what did Nero do? He blamed a group of people who were bringing uprest politically for himself. 
These people were known as Christians. One of the primary leaders and spokespeople of this rebellious sect is Nero Sot, is named Peter. And here we meet him awaiting trial and penning his last words to these believers who, like himself, are enduring persecution. He writes in 2 Peter 1, 13 through 15, just after our text this morning. He says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I also will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to recall these things to mind. Peter is making every effort here, every effort that they may recall these things, these truths that are vital for their enduring faith, these things that would sustain them as they live in a culture opposed to their beliefs, a culture that is antagonistic towards their faith, these things that would cause them to be faithful to the cause of Christ amidst the false teachings of this pagan culture and the false doctrines that were infiltrating themselves into the church these truths that would be protective for their souls and help them to stand the test of trial of their faith like Peter, who was about to die to be an example for them. Do any of these challenges sound familiar to our world today? Is it hard to be the outcast, the religious, the judgmental ones? Are we not also bombarded with false teachings from the world and even from within so-called Christianity itself? Is it not hard to be faithful in a world where everyone out there and even our own flesh are calling us to compromise, give in, and give up? I hope these truths unpacked through this message will strengthen your soul that you will be built up, be encouraged, and be reminded of how vital and necessary our pursuit of godliness is as a believer. We are strangers and aliens to this world. Peter reminded that these same believers in 1 Peter of that very truth. And just like in 1 Peter, he's now calling them and inadvertently us to live like strangers and aliens in this world. In this passage, we are going to see a progression of Peter calling these believers to live by faith, the faith that they have received, and then to be godly to the end. We will learn about the foundation of genuine faith, the pursuit of fruitful faith, and the assurance of enduring faith. So first, let's take a moment. Let's look at the foundation of our genuine faith, and this comes from verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to break this section down into three P's. The premise of our faith, the power of our faith, and the promises of our faith. First, let's look at the first P, the premise of our faith. Peter, after introducing himself as the author, then addresses his audience, and here is the first foundational um, truth of our faith. He says, Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith. These believers received faith. They obtained it. They did not earn faith, seek it on their own accord, or even work for it. Their faith is a gift. 
We know this truth from other passages in Scripture, probably one of the most prevalent, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This premise that our faith is a gift is vital for the rest of this passage. So hang on to that thought as we work our way through. Peter then goes on and he describes this faith. He says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to say that their faith is of equal standing of his. Peter's faith is not greater than theirs. Even though he's an apostle, what he's probably referring to here is he as a Jew and they as Gentiles, they have received the exact same amount of faith. They are one. Christ has unified them as one. And salvation is a gift to all. And this faith is of equal measure because as you see in the next phrase, all believers' faith is obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness as believers, whether Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, right? We just saw that from Colossians 3. Notice also that Peter ascribes Jesus Christ as God here. If you read on in 2 Peter, you will see that one of Peter's primary purposes in this book is to warn these Gentile believers of the false doctrines that are out there. Many of these false teachers refuted that Jesus is God, and so right off the bat, Peter affirms, um, affirms that Jesus is not only Savior, but he is also God. In verse 2, we see another unique aspect of this greeting. Peter asks that grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, grace and peace are often a prayer of greeting, and we see this often in the epistles of the New Testament. But here, here Peter asks that grace, God's free and merited favor, and peace, the state of well-being that flows from being reconciled to God, he asks that these two things would not just be given to them, but that it would be multiplied to them. For example, if we add 100 plus 100, we get 200. Adding brings growth, right? But if we multiply 100 times 100, then we get 10,000. Peter didn't ask that their grace and peace be added to them. He asked that it would be multiplied to them. He wanted them to be inundated with the grace and peace of God. He knows circumstantially these believers are facing challenges and persecution, and thus his request is for an extra measure of grace. I just find that so precious that as a shepherd to his sheep, that's how he's praying for them. You'll notice, though, this grace and peace is only given in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. This word for knowledge here is a personal knowledge, a salvific knowledge. Only when one is truly saved can they experience the gift of grace and peace. And this should encourage us as believers. So our first foundational truth we can learn about is the premise of our faith. And that faith is a gift. The second P, the second foundation to genuine faith, is the power of our faith. And we see this in verse 3. It says, saying that, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It is by his power 
his divine power, a supernatural power, and this power is limitless. The his in this verse is referring to Christ. No one would question that God had divine power. But here in the face of these false teachers who question Jesus' authority, Peter again reinforces that Jesus is God. This power has a purpose, though. It has granted the believer everything she needs for life and godliness. Life here is speaking of spiritual life, being made alive in Christ. One verse I love about this is John 20, 31. It says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Godliness. We've hit this several times. It's that pious Godward attitude that does what is pleasing to him. But notice here, one must first have life. They must first have spiritual life in order to live godly. The order is important. So what has this power done? It has given us everything for life so that we can then obey. There's not one talent one ability, or one resource that God has withheld from us to live godly lives. We have been given spiritually everything we need, and it is sufficient. God has not only supplied our salvation, as seen in verse 1, we received faith. He has supplied everything for our sanctification as well. And notice again, these were granted to us as gifts. They are freely and generously bestowed upon us. We didn't earn them or work for them. God granted, and because of his lavish grace, we are now able to please him and live holy lives. Verse 3 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, how? How was that done? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Once again, just as grace and peace were given to us through our knowledge of Christ, likewise, through this knowledge, he has given us life and godliness. A knowledge of God allows for the power of God to be at work. And Christ's power at work in us is not for ourselves or for our own glory. He called us for his own glory and excellence. We do not live godly lives for our own glory or that we might be viewed as excellent no, just as with our salvation, our sanctification is meant to glorify him. His power, the power of our faith, is the second foundational truth we learn about. And it is through this power that we have everything we need for life and godliness. Christ's generosity, though, it doesn't stop there. He also has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The first component of the foundation of our faith was the premise. The second P was the power, and here we are going to see the promises of our faith. Verse, verse 4 says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This word promise here is actually only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here, and then it's also used later in 2 Peter in verse 13, 3.13, where it reads, But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's speaking here of our future promise in Christ's return in, in 3.13. But here, however, in 1, chapter 1, verse 4, 
These are promises are what enabled us to become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world to come of lust. Peter doesn't specifically state what these promises are and what he's referring to, but what he does clearly speak about here is the benefit of these promises in our life, what they have produced. The result is that we have become partakers of the divine nature, and two, we have escaped the corruption that is in this world. Basically, these promises, they brought about spiritual life. They were instrumental in us becoming new creations in Christ with new desires and new motivations, with divine desires and divine motivations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are now partakers of the divine nature, not little gods, but those with a new nature, with a Godward affections. Notice, too, the contrast in verse 4. It says, We have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This word corruption here, it literally means to deteriorate or decompose. Now, I must admit, I have just a minor interest in infectious diseases. Um, it might be because I have Lyme disease and it just fascinates me how much we don't understand. But the natures of these diseases are, are rather odd and I, they just intrigue me. Well, there's a book called The Hot Zone and the author unlocks the Ebola virus. And there are several different strands of the Ebola virus, and the most aggressive one is called Ebola Zare. And it's actually a little disturbing, okay, a lot disturbing to read about. Um, they describe this Ebola Zare virus as a predator. And literally what it does, I shouldn't be telling you this, but literally what it does is it comes in and it liquefies your body from the inside out. Interestingly though, while it is devastating and pulverizing your cells, destroying your organs and tissues and muscles, <laughs> it waits until the very last moment to attack your brainstem. It wants its host to be walking and living as long as possible so that it can re reproduce itself over and over again. By the time the host, AKA the person or the animal that has this dies, the virus has pre-produced itself hundreds of millions of times. And this takes about 10 days. This is a picture of sinful desires. What they are doing to the unbeliever. They are spiritually decomposing, being devoured by sin. This is Romans 1, 18 through 32 that we already looked at. In man's sinful state, he exchanges the truth of God for a lie and to the point where God gives him over to the deterioration of his soul. Sin is a predator, and it will not rest until it devours you. You will either remain dead in your sins and deteriorate, continuing to go down that road of decomposing, or you will be made a partaker of the divine nature, regenerate, and live in the power and promises of God. There is no neutral state for your soul. 
This quote by Strachan helps sum this up well. He says, man becomes either regenerate or degenerate. Either his spiritual and moral powers are subject to slow decay and death, the wages of sin, or he rises to full participation in the divine. To become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the lust, in the world by lust. You know what this says if you are a believer? You have been rescued. You have been given these promises. We have been plucked out, not physically, but spiritually. And the world and its desires and its passions, they are all going to be fading away. And they no longer control us. We have a new master, and he is good, and he is generous. So far, we've learned three Ps regarding the foundational truths of our genuine faith. The premise of our faith, faith is a gift. The power of our faith, which is Christ's power, has been given to us for everything we need in life and godliness. And the promises of our faith. Christ's precious promises make us divine partake, partakers of the divine nature, and he has freed us from the corruption, the deterioration, the decomposing aspect of sin in our lives. So I want you to think for a minute. Up until this point, who's been the acting agent and who's been the recipient? First one, we are the recipients of faith because of Christ's righteousness. Verse 3, we are the recipients of life and godliness because of Christ's power. Verse 4, we are the recipients of promises because of his glory and excellence. Verse 4, we are partakers in the divine nature and have escaped the corruption of this world and sinful desires because of his precious and magnificent promises. Up until this point, ladies, we've done nothing. And instead, we have been lavished with gifts. These gifts are complete and abundant. Christ has equipped every believer to live out his faith or her faith here on this earth. Now, only with these foundational truths established is Peter going to call us to do something. It says in verse 5, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. We now see our first command and primary imperative in this whole text. Up until this point, everything's been a statement of truth. Those have been those indicatives that I've been talking about. He says, applying all diligence, make every effort. This is strenuous effort. It's with zeal and earnestness, not some zeal or some effort. We are to be giving all diligence we're going to be called in these next verses to labor and to strive to have godly character put in our lives. But let me first draw your attention to the phrase that precedes, precedes this command in verse, four, in verse 5. He says, now for this very reason. This phrase is telling us that our motivation to apply all diligence has already been stated he said in verse 4, You have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you see it? If we lose sight of the gospel, how we have been saved from ourselves, then our efforts are in vain. 
If we try to live out godliness on our own, acting apart from the power and promises of God, we are going to fail. We cannot demonstrate the following list of character qualities unless we are resting in the truths and the promises accomplished in Christ. We will be laboring in vain. We will be striving with our power for our own glory. It is such a temptation when we come to a list like the one we're going to approach to set our theology aside and think, now, how do I make myself godly? How do I make myself like these descriptions? And we put aside our merry spirit of sitting at Jesus' feet, and we happily dress ourselves with our Martha ambition. Scripture doesn't separate our faith and salvation and our faith in sanctification. Let me show you this. Colossians 2.6. He says, Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and it answers how did we receive him up in verse 5, it was by faith. He then tells us, so walk in him. We are to receive Christ by faith, and we are to walk in Christ by faith. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. James 2.17 So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. There's a tension in scripture, ladies. Can we save ourselves? Nope. Can we produce righteousness and transformation in our own lives? No. Can we complete our faith? No, but we are not passively becoming godly through osmosis. (laughs) We don't just sit there and say, make me godly. No, we are called to be diligent. We are called to make every effort. Why? Because of what Christ has done and therefore our desire to be like him in obedience. Becoming a new creation in Christ makes all the difference. It goes back to that identity we learned about this morning. And if we forget this, Training ourselves for godliness becomes self-righteousness. So let's keep that in mind as we work through this list of godly character traits we are to be pursuing. This is how we are called to supplement or nourish our faith. We looked at the foundation of genuine faith. Now let's look at what is the response of a believer. They are to pursue fruitful faith. The pursuit of fruitful faith. These qualities are the fruit of one who received the gifts of faith listed above. He says in verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. A word moral excellence here is virtue or moral heroism. It's the same word that is used in verse 3 of Christ when it says to his own glory and excellence or his own glory and virtue. MacArthur defines it this way. Virtue came to encompass the most outstanding quality in someone's life, or the proper and excellent fulfillment of task or duty. It was never meant to be cloistered virtue, but that which is demonstrated in normal course of living, end quote. 
Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Although this word excellent here is not the exact same word we see in 2 Peter, it has a very similar meaning. And go through Proverbs 31 and evaluate this woman's character. Her virtue is not hidden or cloistered. It manifests itself in everyday life, and that is what it should be doing in ours as well. Our moral excellence should just ooze out of us as we speak, act, work, relate with others. Our families should be able to say, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Proverbs 31, 29. Can your own family say this about you? What about your coworkers, your friends and acquaintances? Do you strive for moral excellence in your life? Next, we are called to supplement our faith with knowledge. <clears throat> We've already seen Peter use this word a couple of times in our passage, and here he's showing a distinction to imply that knowledge of godly, meant, um, of godly living is meant to be practical. It's meant to be lived out. And so the reason this is important is in this culture, this would fly in the face of false teachers. Those false teachers believed that if you knew God, if you had this transcendent knowledge of God, you could live however you want. And Peter is emphasizing here that true knowledge of God will result in godly living. They cannot be separated. This knowledge lived out practically leads us to the next character quality, to be self-controlled. He says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. This word self-control, it's knowledge put into action with temperance. Let me repeat that. It's knowledge put into action with temperance. The word temperance here is key. It is, it, it is the virtue, the self-control is, of someone who masters her desires and passions. The root of this word denotes strength. Having self-control takes strength and restraint. It means my passions, my desires, my lusts, they will not master me. Self-control is making my desires my servant, not making them the, my master, my desires my master. And this is accomplished by having true knowledge. Knowing what God deems is right and wrong regarding the matters of the heart will enable someone to discern when they are being godless or fleshly. I still remember a situation from a few years ago that God used this to reveal my need to grow in self-control. I was feeling, I was in a season of feeling very weak and overwhelmed, and I had just come off a Lyme treatment, and I felt behind in life and energy. And my youngest comes into me, telling me that he has messed up on his homework and that he needs a new graph printed. Well, one more thing on my list, I thought. And I responded in a condemning way, reminding him of how he needed to read his instructions before he starts his homework. Well, fast forward a couple of days, and my son again comes to me. He had been inattentive with his homework once again. I'm on my computer trying to catch up on emails from several days ago, fuming inside of the inconveniences that are happening in my life. 
And then my daughter comes out at that very moment, carrying the knob on her dresser, and she says, Mommy, I pulled too hard. <laughs> oh, without looking at her, I said, just put it on the counter. Well, about five minutes later, I look up. There are no children in the living room. They have all retreated to their bedrooms. <laughs> Immediate conviction. My sin, my lack of self-control, my allowing my passions to rule me, left me alone. I knew I hurt my children. So I go into Carson's room, he's my son, and I ask him for forgiveness for my snarky attitude. I ask him if he's okay with mommy, and his response will be indelibly marked on my heart forever. He said, Mom, the last two days I've had such good days at school, and then when I come home, it's just hard. My heart broke. Immediately tears saturated my eyes. And with tear streaked eyes, I went into my daughter's. I, well, at first I gave him a big hug, <laughs> a very one, and I thanked him for his patience and his forgiveness of me. And then I went into my daughter's room, and I said, Kels, has mommy been unkind to you? And she reminds me of my attitude regarding the knob. I asked her forgiveness, gave her a big hug, and I retreated to my bedroom for a very good long cry. I realized at that moment that my lack of self-control was pushing away those that I loved. They retreated. They removed themselves from their mommy because of my sin. Our home was not a place of refuge, but a place of burden. And my sin had caused this for two days. I realized amidst my tears that I had not been going to the Lord, seeking his help running to him with my tiredness and my exhaustion. I was allowing minor inconveniences to inflame my passions and allowed these passions to rule me. I was not clinging to those foundational truths that I just reminded you of, but walking in the flesh. It's in moments like these that Romans 7 becomes very sweet. Paul who pens how he does the things he doesn't want to do, and he keeps on doing them. And he then exclaims in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you live there at times, feeling the weight of the guilt of your sin? I do. But the very next statement that Paul says is so encouragement. He doesn't remain in his guilt. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul remembered the foundational truths of his faith. In his pursuit of godliness, he failed at times. But the power and promises of Christ, they upheld him to continue to make every effort. He reminds himself of Christ's power and promises in Romans 8. You should read it. I know you're going to get there soon, but you'll be encouraged. Self-control, not letting our emotions be our master. How are you doing in this area? The next character quality we see adds to perseverance. It's called perseverance. It means steadfastness, a patient enduring. This is a person who is unswerving in his purpose and reverence, even in severe trials and suffering. 
This steadfast character is developed from a constant practice of self-control. Because of the one who is not practicing self-control will not stand amidst the world's temptations and trials. How is one to endure when times are hard? How do we stand firm? I love this quote by Barclay about steadfastness. He says, the person who is steadfast does not simply accept and endure. There is always a forward look to it. What is he saying? Perseverance is not just about accepting one's trial and enduring through it, a grin and bear it kind of attitude. The world does that. What bolsters us to keep the faith, faith amidst trials of endurance, those trials that just don't seem to end, we look forward to the future promises of Christ. We are not without hope. Hebrews 12.2, speaking of Christ, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just like with Christ, being steadfast in trial is not the goal. It is the joy set before us, the hope and anticipation of knowing that this trial is temporary and the certainty of what awaits us is worth the struggle. Our trials are not without aim and purpose. Next, he says, living a life of perseverance should produce godliness. Godliness. We've defined this many times, but another passage that describes the same progression as we see here in 2 Peter is James 1 through 2 through 4. When he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our endurance and trials produces in us a complete and perfect faith, a mature faith. In a nutshell, it produces godliness. Do you want to be godly? Don't run from trials, but be willing to endure, bear under the weight of them, knowing that through this perseverance, you are going to become more like Christ. I'm sure many of you are in situations of ongoing trial. I've actually talked with many of you this weekend. Maybe it's chronic health issues, difficult marriages, in the throes of financial pressures, bearing the weight of unsaved family and friends. The list goes on. Can I remind you these trials have a beautiful purpose? They are producing in you godly character, a godly character that will be used to stimulate others towards godliness too. Let's look at our next character quality. Brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is a sign of maturing in godliness. One's ability to look beyond themselves, even in times of trial and affliction, and be able to then look to others. Here, Peter is asking us to make every effort to love the brethren, these other believers. But the word here, this word love, is Philadelphia love. This is the love of kindness. This is the love of strong affection. Love for others, especially believers, is going to be one of the most clarifying ways we can demonstrate to a lost world who Christ is. We are in a society that is consumed with self, my needs, my wants, 
And loving others, having this fond affection, it takes work, sacrifice, and denial, right? We saw that in Colossians. But that is why it stands out so blatantly in today's world. Denying yourself to sacrifice for others is not promoted or esteemed. Brotherly kindness looks starkly different in this unloving world. It is a demonstration of light amidst the darkness. John 13.35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Again, how are you doing loving the brethren? Do you have a strong, tender affection for those that are in the church? Lastly, we are introduced to the pinnacle of all character qualities, love. He says, for now this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Thank you. My nose won't stop. And then he says, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Love here is agape love. Again, this is the love that's not based upon the desirability of the object, but desires the highest good for the object you are seeking to love. This love is inseparable from the giver of love himself, God. That is why this love reaches beyond all believers to all men. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So because as believers we know his love, we have experienced his love, we are now called to love all people. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How well do you love others? How about loving those that are not lovely? Who are not like you? Do you reach out to the world? Are you practicing love? Or are you merely esteeming its quality? This list Peter gives us is challenging. It brings a microscope to the genuineness of our faith. Our character is what produces fruit in our lives. You can't just pick and choose these character qualities. If you have one, you should have all of them. You have either the fruit of faith or you don't. We will always be maturing in it, but the question is, are you growing? Are you applying all diligence to supply your faith with these character qualities? This question is important, and it's one that Peter challenges these believers in. He goes on to say in the verse 8 and 9, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. Peter here says there are two spiritual conditions. The first positive, those who are increasing, who are actively growing in these qualities, and they will not be ineffective or unfruitful. They will be growing, which produces a fruit that all can see, that they can see. The second category are those who are lacking these qualities, 
They are nearsighted spiritually. It even says here that they could be characterized as being blind. They can't see spiritually. They have forgotten they were cleansed from former sins. Cleansed here is referring to baptism, one's identification that they have been given new life. There's an argument here of whether this is a believer who is walking in unrepentant um, sin, who is no longer to as- able to assess their spiritual condition, or this could be a person who claimed to be a believer, even got baptized, but in time her lack of fruitfulness and desire of the Lord has proven that she was never really saved in the first place. Whichever the case, the result is the same. The person who is not growing in these character qualities and not showing fruit, they have no assurance that they've been saved. How are you doing in these character qualities? Are you challenged in ways that you can grow, in ways you can be applying all diligence? I encourage you not to be just challenged or convicted, but to take these areas of weakness, these areas of impossible sin, before the Lord and remind yourself of the foundations of faith that we talked about earlier in this passage so that you might be more zealous to live out godliness. We see in verses 5 through 9, the pursuit of fruitful faith. Bearing fruit in the Christian life is vital for our own spiritual assurance. And now Peter is going to show how this fruit leads to having confidence in our faith becoming sight. Here we will look at number three, the assurance of enduring faith. Verse 10, Peter charges these believers one more time, and he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Peter uses the same verb here as he used before, applying all diligence. But here he says, be all the more diligent. I know I told you to work hard above, but I am saying work even harder. But this time he's not telling them to supplement their faith with these character qualities. He's charging them to make certain God's calling and election of them. That word to make certain, this is a reflexive verb. You are to confirm to yourself, to bring assurance to oneself. It's not that God doesn't know who his children are. He knows if you're saved or not. But God doesn't want us to doubt our assurance either. And Peter tells us how to do this. Verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. How? For as long as you practice these qualities, you will never stumble. Do you understand why we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with these qualities? For in our lives, that confirms to us the hope that our faith will be sight. When Peter says here, never stumble, he's not saying that you'll never sin. He's saying that by practicing these qualities and continuing to grow in them, you will not deviate permanently from the path that leads to eternal life. You will have assurance that you are God's child, and that your hope in eternity will be certain. You can have assurance of your salvation from justification to glorification by looking at the fruit in your life. This is why Peter concludes the way he does in verse 11. He 
It says, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. For one last time, I want you to look at who is the acting agent and who is the recipient in this verse. God is the acting agent. He is the one who will richly provide for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. We are the recipients. We are given eternal life. The one who practices these qualities will be richly rewarded upon their entry into God's kingdom. Practicing these qualities, they won't give us salvation. They won't give us eternal life. We can't work our way to heaven. But the fruit of these qualities in our lives... They will directly correlate to the reward we will receive when we go to be with him in glory. Talk about a motivating factor. To pursue godliness in our lives, he has given us everything we need for life in, of faith here on this earth. And this faith is with the future hope, eternal life. Our pursuit of godliness is reflective of our understanding of who God is and what he has done on our behalf through the person and work of Christ. Our motivation to continue to fight the good fight, to stand firm in the faith, to endure to the end, is a response of his loving kindness to us. He has mercied us. He has made us new. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has withheld nothing from you, but lavished you with grace. Why? That you might put him on display by emulating the one who rescued you from yourself. As I mentioned last night, my prayer for this weekend has been that you will learn to read scripture a little differently. I know that you will not remember all that I've shared or even be able to apply it all. But if you walk away from this time, is one who can't wait to learn God's heart and understand the why behind his instructions, then our time will help produce in you godliness for the rest of your years to come. Let me pray to that end. Lord, I thank you that godliness, although it's something we are to make every effort, we are to apply with all diligence in our life. Lord, we are not to grow weary we have learned this weekend, how do we not grow weary in this pursuit? How do we continue to fight the good fight? How do we continue to stand firm in our faith? Lord, it is because of you. It is remembering who you are, what you've done, how you've equipped us. And Lord, from that we can rejoice and we can walk with confidence knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, you will allow us to endure to the end if we are truly yours. Lord, I thank you for these ladies. I thank you for their hearts to want to learn and grow. I thank you for the many conversations I've had that have just encouraged my own soul to want to walk more uprightly, to want to be more honorable to you. And Lord, it is because of your mercy that all of this has begun in our hearts. Lord, may you use this weekend for them to continue to pursue and strive. May they not grow weary in their attempts. And, Lords, when they do, may they go back to those foundational truths of their faith, remembering that they have received faith as a gift. It's all been a work of you and all as a result of what Christ has done on our behalf. To you be all glory and honor and praise. In Christ's name, amen.